I see joy as a form of resistance. I see it as a source of power because it's how we continue to stand on our two feet. Even when we're knocked down, we find that power and, and a lot of that power is sourced through joy that we create. And the reason why I say that joy is power is because when so much is being stripped of our rights, of our voices and all of that, we choose to embody joy. That's a form of taking back our power. Nobody can take that from us. And so that is a source of power that is really permeated through this entire movement from the moment we were brought here and enslaved. We found our joy regardless. And, and it absolutely, it's joy and joy is resistance. Joy is defiance. And so I, I see power in all of that. Coming up on the Janice Adams Show, Janice Adams. As journalist, historian, author, race and gender glass ceiling breaker, I wanted to do a show that would nurture our spirits, fuel us for the days ahead, to help us make that way out of no way through these trying times. I wanted to do a show about race, every race, and courage. A show where you and I meet public figures we want to know more about, and neighbors from whom we hear too little. Voices, perspectives, insights, we simply need to hear. I love the fact that one critic said of my work, Janice Adams gives us vitamins for the soul. Well, with this episode of the podcast, here's a dose for your day. Hi, I'm Janice Adams. Welcome to the show. When Dr. Pamela Larde takes to the air for her talk show and podcast, she's known as the Joy Whisperer. Dr. Pamela is also Associate Professor of Leadership and Director of Education at the Institute of Coaching, McLean Harvard Medical School, founder of the Academy of Creative Coaching and Tandem Light Press. She is a Joy researcher, mom, and my guest today on the show, Pamela, welcome. Thank you. Joy. Wow. <laughs> do we need it now? <laughs> wow, do we need it now? And But I would ask you, how do you define it? What is it? And are you finding much of it in these, as Roberta Flack would say, trying times, you know? Wow. Yeah. You know, what's interesting about trying times is, is that is what helps us really understand the joy in, in, a, in a more compelling way, because that contrast, if we always were joyful, you know, if every day was beautiful and stormless and easy, I think we would take for granted the days that are sunny and that, that do help us more easily find joy. And so I think what happens is that by having those storms, it does really compel us to create joy, to be more proactive about it, as opposed to taking it for granted and allowing it to be something that's just another going through the motions type of experience. So in terms of how I define joy, you know, it's really, a lot of people ask me the difference between joy and happiness. It's a very common question. And I, and I think the answer is not super complex. It's, it's probably an answer that many of us have heard, but that, that happiness is really based on events, what's happening, how we respond to sort of the immediate stimuli in a natural sense. Naturally, I'm going to feel happy if somebody brings me a gift or gives me a hug. Joy, it, it takes a, a bit more intention. Um, it means that we are choosing 
to exude joy. And this is, and this comes from the inside out and it doesn't matter what's happening on the outside. You have people in, in war-torn countries. Um, somebody that comes to mind is Malala, who, who was shot in Afghanistan based on her, because of her desire to pursue education. And yet, managed to maintain joy through that. It, did she have moments of despair? Absolutely. Those are what come naturally. The joy is what you choose. The joy is what you create. The joy is what you build from within and 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 walk in as a result. You know, it's interesting that uh, you would cite Malala. And of course, that happened to her as a teenager. And she credits her father with maintaining her spirits through that period of time and thinking of it that way and and I'm sure her mother too but I I know I've heard a, a lot of talk about what her father was able to to do to keep her going and and I think it's probably given the fact that it was such a male dominated thing as to why she was shot it was the term, determination of her father why people are noting it per, perhaps a little bit more but Here we are, two African-American women in the United States, 2022. It's 403 years of America or what would become America and the just steady drumbeat of atrocity from that first boatload of African-Americans being forced to shore here. And yet, you know, when, when I hear the word joy, I think of the way it is used traditionally in black churches, the the sermons about joy cometh in the morning and all of that. How do black people do this? <laughs> I have to ask as a black person. <laughs> yeah. And, and then why do we do it? You know, how do we do it? Why do we do it? And, you know, and I think that, again, joy cometh in the morning again, drives home the point that it is the darkness that helps us better appreciate and and grasp the joy, you know, and as much as I would wish that we didn't have to have that contrast in order to fully appreciate joy, there's something in our psyche that, you know, compels us to find joy more so when things after things have been difficult and sometimes in the midst of it. And, you know, the civil rights movement was largely grounded uh, in principles of joy. We articulate it now in in different ways. You know, there's a whole hashtag called black joy. Anybody who gets on Instagram, search that hashtag black joy and and follow it because you, you see all of these different representations of black joy, whether it is just family gathering, people singing, people protesting, even the ways that joy brings the energy to keep pushing and to keep, you know, pursuing justice. It, joy has been the fuel for a lot of that, ironically, because also pain has been yeah. the fuel. <laughs> pain has been, has been the goading. It's unrelenting. I mean, so we don't even have throughout pre-American and American history, and I don't and I don't mean pre-American by on the continent, I mean colonial American into politically American history. There is a steady just level of of bestial atrocity. I have to be honest about that. But and so it's not even a cycle. 
I think as a black woman, the only time I felt truly American was the eight years of the Obama administration. Look what happened in the aftermath of that to say, and no, you aren't. But when I think of joy, especially when you link it to the civil rights era, what I think of is joy as a form of resistance. And you talk about that, don't you? Yeah, I, I see joy as a form of resistance. I see it as a source of power. Absolutely, because it's how we continue to stand on our two feet. Even when we're knocked down, we find that power. And, and a lot of that power is sourced through joy that we create. And the reason why I say that joy is power is because when we, when so much is being stripped of us, of our rights, of our voices and all of that, we choose to embody joy. That's a form of taking back our power. Nobody can take that from us. And so that is, again, I, I emphasize a source of power that is really permeated through this entire movement from, from the moment, you know, we, we were brought here and enslaved. We found our joy regardless. And, and it absolutely, it's joy. It, it, and there's a term that's called joy is resistance. Joy is defiance, joy, you know, and so I, I see power in all of that. Absolutely. It's interesting because I, I started off looking at barriers and how people overcome challenges. And that started with becoming the first in one's family to go to college. How did that happen? What were the... Uh, the influences, the environment, the people, the challenges that needed to be overcome in order to be first in the family to go to college. It then, it's interesting how, <laughs> how research evolves. Um, when I moved to Georgia, I had um, the- Moved to Georgia from where? From Wisconsin, actually, which is interesting, interesting because I was born and raised in California, but I lived in Wisconsin for seven years. Uh, and that's where I did my doctoral work. And uh, as soon as I moved to Georgia, I had um, somebody who was interested. They worked for the Department of um, Public Health, Mental Health here, and they were interested in having somebody do trainings for military families after experiencing trauma. And, you know, I never say no to things <laughs> immediately. I think about it. And though I hadn't done work in trauma at that to that point, my work did focus on determination and resilience and overcoming, and they were interested in that angle. So I then started to embark on research around reintegration, uh, military personnel coming back from combat and what that transition looked like and how the families also were a part of that transition. So again, studying barriers, how people overcome barriers. I then began to look at heartbreak and, and that was based on my own experience and how I overcame heartbreak. And I started to study it, you know, and, and there are, there are um, conditions actually called heartbreak related depression and complicated grief. So again, looking at barriers. So, so the consistent thread in, in all the research I had done in the past 10, 11 years had been, how do people overcome hardship? And, and looking at from military families to first-generation students 
to impoverished college students was another area, um, to how people overcome divorce. I found myself thinking, you know, I need a, I need a common thread. I need to understand these all seem like very different areas (laughs) that are unrelated. What is the common thread? And that common thread was the overcoming barriers. So what I, as I dug more deeply into that, I realized that what people were looking for was joy. So after divorce, people are looking for joy after coming back from combat and their families and being reunited, they are looking for that joy again. People who are trying to get to college for the first time, they are looking for fulfillment and for joy. And so it became very clear to me that it's time to start looking at the other side of overcoming barriers. You know, what are people actually striving for in doing that? And joy was very loud and clear to me. And I, and I, I dove in because there's not a lot of, of agreement in academia around what joy is. You've got different fields. You've got positive psychology and you've got theology and their views on joy don't really line up. And, and I just thought, you know what, I'm going to take this on and, and even marry the two disciplines um, to kind of find out, you know, what is this and, and how do people pursue it? So what is your discipline technically as a scholar? Yeah. So, so my discipline formally is, is leadership. And really leadership in the purest form. So it's not necessarily organizational leadership um, or leadership as it pertains to, you know, education or a specific field. We studied some of the great leaders, you know, in history and their philosophies and their morality. And so it it really was a, a I, I consider a pure study of what leadership is. And that the the studies that I have pursued since then have really leaned more in the direction of positive psychology. So I'd probably put myself in the positive psychology house. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm very interdisciplinary in the work that I do. Um, you know, I pull from a lot of areas, but I, I do think that positive psychology is probably the the most foundational. And then what led you to that as your doctoral work? You know, it's interesting because I I started off, I was a first generation student myself, uh, first in the family to, to finish college. And when I finished, I finished as a single mom, traditionally aged college student, just happened to have a baby at 19. And I just continued and I um, built a network of, of support where my son had about five moms who were my college friends and, and they really were my community to, to help me, um, you know, push through. And after I finished, I mean, I just looked at all of the battles that I had to fight, you know, even with the social services at one point, my last year of college, they sat me down and said, because of reform, welfare reform, we we can no longer have you receiving welfare while being on in school full time. You'll need to quit school and get a full time job. And I'm thinking this is my last year. (laughs) And I fought it. And thank God I had a social worker who said, you know what, I I see what you're doing and I'm going to fight with you. And she made sure that whatever reform had been put into place did not impact me until I was able to graduate. And that was great for me, but it makes me wonder what other people were negatively impacted by that. What happens when you don't have that kind of allyship and advocacy, but it also says what's wrong systemically, that something would be put in place that kind of enforces poverty? Because here you were taking all the initiative to do the kind of hard work to get to the point where you would have the kind of job that would 
support you and your family. And they were taking that away from you to say, no, you'll have to get a full-time job in a, in a career that will not support you because you don't have a college education. And that's the way we want it. And, and I saw that loudly and clearly. Uh, it wasn't about whether or not I'm, I'm making full-time money in the moment. It was about what was my trajectory going to be if I didn't finish college or if I took on the full-time job and tried to continue college as a single mom working full-time. Um, and I had, mind you, I did have three jobs, <laughs> you know, all of which made it possible for me to navigate a schedule that I needed to navigate. But yeah, that, that, you know, battles like that. And there were a number of battles like that when I was trying to get through college, it, it, it really made me want to help other people once I graduated. So I ended up getting a master's degree in college student affairs with the thought that I would help people, especially people in situations like mine, get through college. I also had the mission of wanting to create opportunities for parents to have flexible lives. You know, so maybe in the workplace, there was childcare that was right there on site that they would be able to access without cost because my master's degree program had an on-site childcare center for free for students. I mean, it was, it was a godsend. I mean, it was, it was the thing that allowed me to take classes at night. So I became committed to finding ways to create those kinds of opportunities for people. And that was my vision when I, when I pursued my master's, my PhD in leadership, was really to further, you know, that mission. And, and I remember in my admissions interview, they asked me, you know, what aspect of leadership is, is most compelling to you? And I said, you know, I don't even know if this is a word, but self-leadership. I want to teach people how to become leaders of self. And, and here I am basically doing exactly that. <laughs> when we come back, Dr. Pamela Lade, the Joy Whisperer, Associate Professor of Leadership and Director of Education at the Institute of Coaching, McLean Harvard Medical School, founder of the Academy of Creative Coaching and Tandem Press, Joy Researcher, Mom. More with Dr. Pamela after the break. We're back here on the Janice Adams Show with my guest today, Dr. Pamela Larde, and we've been talking about her work around the subject of joy, and especially through these difficult times that the world seems to be in a difficult time. Yes, it's the pandemic, but it also seems something to be something of a mindset of what people are going through. Pamela, when, when you look at this subject of joy, we talked in the last segment about African-American history and, and how culturally African-Americans have worked, really worked on being joyful in spite of all that we have endured. The question I have now is that other side, the side that seems to be perpetrating and need to perpetrate an environment where certain people will never experience joy. It seems to be their mission in life. What is going on with that? Yeah, you know, and I think what that is, is a, a, severe, a severe lack of joy, a joy deficiency. I mean, to be honest, you know, it's it goes back to that saying, hurt people, hurt people. I, and, and I haven't done specific research on this, but I have read the work of other researchers who who have looked at 
what happens when people who are either traumatized or um, experience a lack of fulfillment in life, how they perpetuate those same experiences onto other people. So for example, Brene Brown was uh, having a conversation um, in which she was talking about, I, I guess there were a group of people somewhere off the coast of Texas and they were on boats waving flags that were, you know, essentially anti-American, which is ironic because they wouldn't consider it to be anti-American, but they were hate-filled slogans and they were just, you know, going on and on. And when she saw that, you know, her first thought was who hurt them in their childhood, in their, you know, past generations, you know, that they looked like, you know, a bunch of hurt children who were acting out. And, and I thought, you know, that is a really good analogy because, I mean, really, if we look at what's happening politically, if we look at what I consider the tantrums that are being thrown on television and in political meetings and conversations, um, you know, it's rooted somewhere. And and while I don't want to offer excuses and offer, you know, oh, they're hurt, so you know, they 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 need support. Absolutely not. But I do think that it is a lack of joy that they have in their own lives that compels them. I mean, and, and that's why joy is such a, and I'll just say it, a weapon <laughs> um, in many ways for justice, because it's exactly the thing that people who perpetuate oppression and pain, they do not want to see that. You know, they they want to have their own. And I think what maybe is happening when they see, when they are having their good times and they're celebrating, I think what they're experiencing is happiness, but I don't think it's joy. And I think that, you know, in fact, we have this, this concept called, it's a German term, and, and I'm not going to pronounce it per- correctly, but it's Schadenfrede, S-C-H-A-D-E-N-F-R-E-D-E. And what it means is that it's taking joy in other people's pain. And that's another, uh, uh, there you go. Exactly. And, and it's another, uh, I guess, line of, of research that I'm interested in looking at, because I think that people mistake that experience as true, pure joy. But what it is, is exactly what you just said. I mean, it is, it is this glory and the celebration that they have around seeing other people's pain. And that is what has driven so much of what you're seeing modern day of police brutality, of enslaving people, of genocide. It is this sick joy, which, you know, and I'm only using it I'm only calling it joy because that's what the definition calls it. It's the beauty of being a researcher. I can re-term it, but it is, for lack of a better term right now, this joy in seeing other people's pain. I'm hearing that and hearing it as we're discussing it. Well, actually, you're discussing it on two levels. You're discussing it on the individual level and on that next higher societal level. I'm just thinking about Well, there's something, an image that keeps banging into my head. And it was my flying into London and just a story, just a story. But I was flying into London from Paris. And I noticed that as we came over Paris, 
uh, and it was the private airfields in both places that we were coming in and out of. So you were seeing a different kind, the landscape was markedly different. In Paris, there, the landscape, there were large homes and, you know, fairly large tracts of land. But when you got to the London side uh, of with the private airport, you got these massive, I mean, it looks like city-states, the Downton Abbey type tract of land. And I mentioned it to the driver and he, hearing my accent, was proud to say, well, you know, what you're seeing is the British inheritance system where the eldest son inherits everything and the rest of the family is exists at his largesse. And he, the part where he was like, you know, trying to stick it to an American, I, I think that's the one time that I, I might say that someone didn't put the fact that I was black before being an American, but he was trying to stick it to me kind of that way. And he said, and that's because you people in the colonies have the second son. And I said, well, what are you talking about? And he said, well, the second son was raised with all the wealth of the eldest son, but then the second son has none of it, except if his older brother decides. And he said, whether it's fully true or not, the psychology of it is interesting. He said, it's the second son who then left to create new worlds because the the eldest son certainly wasn't going to leave he had everything the daughters weren't going to leave because they are dependent on a marriage system and you know coming over to the colonies isn't likely to get them well situated but the second son came to the colonies and really tried to recreate what they had grown up with with that uber wealth and how to enforce that and impose that. And some people have said, I'm a historian by training, and there is conversation about the, the whole thing about taxation without representation and the conflict yeah. between King George and the colonies and all that wow. having a lot to do with that family squad. That makes a lot of sense. <laughs> it it does in a funny way as to then and that does not mean to exonerate England for the problem that it created by creating the colonial system or to exonerate Spain mm -hmm. and and the pope who sent unleash the whole mess it's not to exonerate any of that but as with so much in life it's what you make of it and the question is <laughs> what was made of it here that's what's been shown to us. Yeah. You know, and I wonder about that, especially when you talk about Brene Brown talking about Brene Brown, for those people who don't know, being the researcher who was tapped by Oprah Winfrey and has become this mega institution of her own about her research. Brene Brown talking about the people that she saw offshore and being anti-American. And the part of me that is the historian is saying, is that really anti-American or was that American? Because that is American history. The hatefulness is American history and American culture. And we can see it coming back in very strange ways right now, like in recent 
court trials where it, defense attorneys have been trying to animalize and bestialize black people in order to exonerate their clients. So question is, where is that level of inadequacy coming from? I will call it inadequacy. I think you've used a different word uh, coming from. Why in what is considered a land of plenty? Is it so pervasive? Uh, and I, I'm going to come back to Brene Brown's work. One of her areas of focus is shame resilience. And it's that idea of being ashamed of you know, who you are. There's a difference in being than, you know, guilty versus shame. Shame is I am a bad person. If you're walking around with that sense of I am a bad person, you're going to do whatever you need to do to protect yourself and to make those feelings go away. And, and so what that sometimes translates into is dehumanizing other people, which is ironic because if <laughs> you don't want to be a bad person, but then you turn around, dehumanize other people. And this is really to elevate yourself. So as you mentioned with these court cases, I'm going to quote unquote, animalize black people, black men, uh, uh, Maude Arbery, that was a horrible um, representation of, you know, her perception of what, a, a, you know, he was. And this is done because people who live in a state of shame and unworthiness, that's another one of, of Brene's terms, um, people who live in that state have to find ways to make themselves feel worthy, to rise above what they see, you know, this experience of shame. And in doing that, they've got to elevate themselves above other people. And, and they do it in dehumanizing ways. As you mentioned, the second brother coming here and creating what we now know as the United States. I, I have got to dig more deeply into that because it, it, it's it's exceptionally profound when you think about the fact that the wounded brother came here and started our country. <laughs> mm -hmm. The the second the outcast the outcast the, the second, wounded the, the second the, son the yeah. one who was feeling betrayed and marginalized. And Brene Brown, I just thought of the word it that I was trying to get to of her work and it's vulnerability. Vulnerability. Yes. Yep. And, and that for some people is so uncomfortable that I will do whatever I need to do not to feel vulnerable, even if it means dehumanizing others. And so it's this fight for, for survival. It's this fight to, you know, and this comes from a fear of not being able to survive and thrive. And so in order to do that, I'm going to make sure that whatever it takes, I am an, I'm on top. I'm, I'm the one in power. And even if it means, as you say, dehumanizing out others, but as with the book that came out years ago and some of the behaviors that we're seeing manifested all over again, the book, What's the Matter with Kansas, even sometimes acting outside oh, yeah. one's own best interest. We see that. That's happening. You yeah. know, mm -hmm. we're seeing that oh, yeah. in, in yeah. rapid fire right now. The, the United States's reliance on guns can be brought into that. In your work over the years, you've, you've spoken about becoming this first person in your family to go through and complete college. And now you have gone all the way, but tell us something about the family 
who made you possible. Yes. And that was part of my initial study is to really, what when I say I want to understand the environment that the person experienced that led them to college, it, it essentially is the family. And in my case, uh, you know, I am extremely grateful for parents who were intentional about positioning us well. Now, they didn't know all the ins and outs of college and in terms of, you know, positioning us well with, you know, the best education and the best tutors. They didn't do all that. They just wanted to make sure that we were in a safe environment. Uh, You know, they grew up in Alabama and Mississippi and where they grew up, there was a whole lot of, you know, the born in the fifties. And, and, and I mean, my mom tells me moments of going into a store and the way she was treated and, and having to stand up for herself, having to always watch their back, you know, and they wanted to make sure that they raised children that didn't have to have those worries on a day-to-day basis. They moved to California not to say that California is, you know, um, uh, not guilty of anything, but they also knew that where they were moving was um, new communities, diverse communities that would um, enable us to just just be, you know, without the stress and the worry of Jim Crow laws that were still Jim Crow laws that are still evident in 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 some of these southern states. So they were so they did that. That was the first thing. We're going to re you know locate our family and reposition our family. So it was part of what I have heard um, is really kind of the the great Western migration. You know, we've we've heard a lot about Black people in the South who have moved to the Midwest. There was also a, a great number of us who moved to the West um, and and really kind of recreated it, uh, our own communities. They also were extremely vocal about who I was. They, they, they made sure I knew that I am beautiful and strong and smart and they never stopped saying those things. And um, I mean, even last week I was over there, you know, you're so smart. You're so, and, you know, so I've heard it my whole life. And in my study with the students who are first in their families to go to college, every single one of them heard that in their family as they were growing up. It may not have been their mother, their mother might have been the one that was their worst opposition, but they had a cousin or an uncle or an aunt or a grandmother. Somebody consistently reinforced that for them. And I think that was probably one of the most important elements that that got me to college was hearing that I am capable of doing whatever it is that that I, I set out to do. I never doubted that, never once, because it was just ingrained in me from the very beginning. They didn't have to push me to go to college. They didn't have to even, you know, help me with applications, nothing. All they had to do was just plant the seed that it's cap- that I'm capable, that I'm able to pursue whatever it is that I want to pursue. To be supportive of you, uh, of, of your inner energies and drives. What did they do for a living? My dad started on the bun line <laughs> for a bakery and they made buns. And this was um, probably in like 72. He was making $2 an hour and he just retired from the same industry, not even a year ago, this year in, in uh, June. So he started there and worked his way up to, you know, uh, the manager of the building and so forth. But, and these are different companies, you know, that he worked for at different times, but same industry, basically just working his way up. My mom, a stay at home mom and, um, really made sure the house was 
running and functional and safe, you know, for all of us. So how did she do that? I mean, or how did they do that? on two dollars an I, hour. You know, I, I don't know. They managed to buy a house in a brand new house, you know, in the suburbs. Their first few years of marriage, um, you know, it was before I was there, but you know, they they did whatever they had to do. But by the time I came along and I was two years old, I was raised from age two to age 18 in a brand new community, a very diverse community of families that were the same working families. And I just think the economy was very different then. And and buying houses were very different then. It was a very different experience then. And they were able to do it and and make it happen. So it was kind of like, that's what the American dream, I think, is supposed to look like. And, And it worked for them. And your siblings, what do they do? So my brother, I have one brother, he's two years younger than I am, and he is a newly minted entrepreneur over the last few years. COVID really kind of triggered that for him. He was working in medical supplies industry, and now he has started his own business and was actually able to leave that business because, or that company, because he's been doing so well. Mm, so how wonderful, yeah. how wonderful. Yeah. So this whole then climate and and while we're talking about family, let me ask you about your son. You mentioned him. What are his interests? Yeah, so I have two kids. I have a son and a daughter. My son is 25. My daughter is 14. He is very much interested in film. He actually was born in California. Age six, we moved to Wisconsin. And by the time he got to college, he wanted to get back to California. He remembers those first six years sitting in college classrooms with me. <laughs> and so, so he is back and, and he is um, pursuing a degree in film in Santa Barbara. So that's, oh, that's his, a great place, he's a creative too. being uh, like myself. Oh yeah. Absolutely. Beautiful place. Yeah. For, for, for that. And your daughter, what, yes. is, what is her interest? She is an avid dancer. And I've known this from the time I was pregnant with her and we would go to, you know, drumming events, African dance events. Moving and inside. I saw a child moving inside of me said, Oh, this is a dancer. And, and that is absolutely accurate. Well, isn't father, that amazing? It's amazing. I mean, her father wanted her to be yeah. a tennis player. I would have loved her to follow in my footsteps as a writer or a softball player. And as much as we tried, you know, to influence her in that way, she found her own way. She is a dancer undeniably. I have a granddaughter who is a dancer, undeniably, even though she's going to college in international affairs and international studies. She was with the Ailey School from the age of three until she aged out of the Ailey School at that point. Um, At the end of high school, she aged out and it's who who they are. But, you, you know, I had an interesting experience. You talk about the activity that they have when they're inside. And actually, I don't talk about it very often because of the politicization of women who may need an abortion. And and I really don't want my experience to be taken out of context for someone who may need that and for whom it may be best. So, But I will say that very late in my pregnancy, before we knew that they were twins. But this was one one of the experiences when I realized, wait a minute, something else is going on here, even though the doctor didn't believe me. <laughs> and I was covering Attica. 
I was doing a show about the Attica Rebellion. That's how long ago it was. And I had guests on the show who had been in cell block D when the Attica Rebellion took place. And also part of that show was Arthur Eve, who was the state legislator who was asked to be a negotiator and people from the Fortune Society. And so we're all sitting around this huge table in the radio station. The on-air light goes on and all of a sudden, Oh my goodness. <laughs> my twins start moving inside and my dress keeps popping up <laughs> because, and I'm saying, but I'm not nervous. Are they able to? No, they're not able to see the sign, but something in me triggered them saying, it's, it's time for us to go, you know, but what, what happened as a result of that was we really had to stop the, the taping because the men who'd been in cell block D who had been imprisoned for so long and really brutalized in, in that experience asked very quietly, you know, shyly, could they touch my stomach? They had not had that kind of contact with life. And so, and they were nervous to ask. And I finally let them because it was so, that was the, that is how far dehumanized, disconnected their experience had been. And now here they were out and trying to rebuild their own humanity. It was quite, quite, quite an ex experience, you know? And so back to this topic of joy, these men had gone through the absence of happiness and joy. And, but here they were, I'm thinking of something you said earlier about how one finds and makes joy. Uh, and perhaps you'll say it for us again, but what it was taking them to rebuild themselves mm. is what I got oh. from that experience. I, I would love to, I mean, I know we can't do this now, but I would love to hear more about that at, at some point, because that sounds so powerful. When we come back, more with our guest, Dr. Pamela Larde, the Joy Whisperer, the Janice Adams Show, more after the break. I am a 28-year-old black male who enjoys reading your writing, came the letter to my email box. I would like to request from you a reading list of recommended African-American books that will help to open my mind. Sincerely, a student of life. I understood where he was coming from. I knew what books had done for me, how the right books had opened my mind and opened doors. Indeed, whenever I give a talk, someone will inevitably stay behind to confide, if only I'd known, to ask, why didn't anyone tell me to say thank you for helping me to break through the code of silence on a vast world of experience, ideas, and possibilities. Well, that email and some of the people that I've met at those lectures inspired my list, 50 books that changed the history of African America, and you can download your free copy from my website. Just go to JaniceAdams.com, J-A-N-U-S-A-D-A-M-S.com, and click on Books and More in the menu. For more about the podcast, my books, speaking engagements, 
you know what to do. Visit JaniceAdams.com. We're back here on the Janice Adams Show with my guest, Dr. Pamela Larde, the Joy Whisperer. Question that I'm asking you is for people in desperate situations who find themselves there, who find themselves even stuck there as an incarcerated person would be, who have to come out and create new lives and new sense of self, new possibilities. What does joy mean in that context when you've been so denied and deprived? Yeah. You know, this is one of the reasons why a lot of my prior research intersects so beautifully with joy. One of the theories that have largely driven, you know, the work that I've done in the past is self-determination theory by Ryan and Desi. And what they talk about is that there are three basic psychological needs that need to be fulfilled in order for somebody to be determined in the first place. And that's autonomy, that's relatedness, and that's competence. So autonomy, being able to make decisions on your own and move about your life the way that you see fit competence, knowing that you're able to do something, that you have the ability to get it done and relatedness, having people who are there for you and who care about you, who you can are connected to. And when I taught this principle to a group of formerly incarcerated citizens, this was them just recently being incarcerated and, and being reintegrated into, you know, common society. And I went over those three you know, psychological needs. And one of them talked about how at one point he was kidnapped and was tied and bound, you know, by a group of gang members and and locked in a basement and had no idea what was next for him. If he was going to get out, if he was going to get out alive, they were going to torture him. He just had no idea. But in that moment of being blindfolded and bound and in a basement, you know, he had no idea, you know, where he was. He said that he he identified identified with the term autonomy because that's exactly what he did in that moment. He found a way to find peace and you know by singing. He just sang to himself even with you know his mouth was about gagged and all that but he found a way to sing to himself. He found a way to mentally be free. I've heard the same you know for people who have experienced the absolute inhumane practice of um, what is that? The maximum uh, security when they're put into isolation, um, that experience and, and going within themselves to find that peace that enables them to survive those moments. Being unjustly um, put on death row when you know that your life is going to be taken for crime that you did not commit. I've heard stories of, of how they go into themselves and how they find that joy so that they can get through each and every day. It's almost as if the joy is even more essential in those kinds of situations um, than they are with me going through my everyday, go into the store and sitting in traffic. And yeah, joy is essential then. But it, it almost seems as if in those dire situations that being able to find that joy and find that autonomy uh, within yourself, it's almost like a life and death decision. In your work now, you are a coach, but a professional 
coach. You're newly with the McLean Hospital and Harvard Medical, and you are doing coaching there. And I read about your work on nonviolent communication and humility for these corporate clients. Dr. Pamela Lardy, I can see that you're working to change the world <laughs> in, 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 with that topic. But how, therefore, does this work that you're doing work to potentially do some systemic change by even speaking to people at that level about nonviolent communication and humility? Yeah. You know, you know, so I came across this work and and Rosenthal is sort of the the, the father of this idea of non-violent communication. And, and a lot of people, you know, the term doesn't resonate with them, but if you can get past the term and get to the, the, you know, the essence of what it is. And, and honestly, I think the term is absolutely appropriate because we have a society that engages regularly in violent communication. And if we think about Everything is a war on. Everything uses a, a very violent metaphor. Yes. I, and if you think about what violence is, violence is, is something that, whether intentional or not, causes harm on, on to other people. And communication does exactly that. And, you know. It's also the absence of a better idea. <laughs> beautifully said. Yes. Yes. So, so. I I really gravitated to towards his work on nonviolent communication, you know, because as a, you know, and also I have a coaching school, um, the Academy of Creative Coaching, in which I write the curriculum for that. And I, you know, we had, I did, yes. <laughs> okay. Sure. Yes. And, and so we had the standard, you know, as an accredited school, there are certain things that we have to have in our curriculum. And so we had the standard communication skills module in our program, but I ne it never sat well with me, you know, and I thought this has to get deeper. Like, sure, we can teach people how to communicate with each other, how to listen. But when I came across, and of course, I did a search of, of a lot of different types of communication styles. But when I came across nonviolent communication, I thought this is it. This is exactly what our society needs. This is what coaches need to be equipped with when they graduate from our program. When they graduate from our program, I want them to understand the difference between life-giving communication and nonviolent communication. Cultural humility was brought into that conversation because I have a coach on our team who is very passionate about the subject of cultural humility. And he says it really well. You know, his name is Joel Perez. And he says it really well. He says, you know, in order to really effectively engage in nonviolent communication, we have to have a posture of cultural humility. And, and what that really means is that we are willing to be the people who don't know it all, who are curious and who ask questions and who genuinely want to understand other people's experiences that's the humility. Like, I don't know it all. And I'm not even, I, I don't necessarily need to know it all, but I do want to learn about you. I do want to learn who you are and what your experience has been. And if we can maintain that posture throughout all of our interactions, um, we are essentially practicing nonviolent communication without even necessarily knowing each of those principles, but it definitely puts us in position to be excellent at nonviolent communication. Moving forward, you are, well, tell us about, tell us about the school, the Academy for Creative Coaching that you founded. 
What is that? So this was about hmm, seven, eight years ago. I went through coach training myself. And as a college professor, as somebody who writes curriculum, I have to admit I was not pleased or thrilled with the coach training I went through. And I thought, surely it can be done better than this. And so within a year or two... Excuse me, excuse me, just one question. What were you training in when you were taking coach training? I was training to be a life coach. And the difference between that and my school is that my school has seven, you know, different specialization. So you can be a life coach, an executive coach, a relationship coach. So there's a lot of different options. I specifically was looking to be a life coach. And the reason is because I had a number, I was a newly minted professor and I had a number of doctoral students who came to me with non-academic challenges as to why they couldn't finish their dissertations, why they couldn't do their research. It was things like a, a parent passed away, a child was sick, a husband was unfaithful. And here I am teaching research and having to help students through life challenges. And that's when it made, became very clear to me, I need life coach training. <laughs> so, uh, so that's how that came about for me. And when I went through the life coach training experience, I just wasn't, I felt like it was an empty sort of dry certificate, cert, was it certificate mill type of school, you know, do you pay, you get the certificate. And, and I thought, you know, surely there is a, a more transformational way to create coach certification. So that's what I did. I created a school, Academy of Creative Coaching, that is intentional about life transformation through the process of getting certified. And and we became one of the first, if not the first, I haven't been able to validate whether what what it is, Black female-owned coach certification school in the world. There are now more, which I'm I'm thrilled about, but we were among the first and, and being among the first brought its own interesting, unique challenges along the way. But I am glad to see that more and more people of color are really pursuing coaching as a career and leadership and research in coaching. Thank you so much, Dr. Pamela Larde. We, we will be listening. Thank you so much for joining me here on the show today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. My thanks to Dr. Pamela Larde, the Joy Whisperer, and to you for joining us on the Janice Adams Show today. For more about our guest and her work, visit my website, JaniceAdams.com. That's J-A-N-U-S Adams.com. Produced in cooperation with WJFF Radio Catskill, post-production Jason Dole and Patricio Robayo. This show is a production of Janice Adams, LLC, all rights reserved.